How's it going, family? Um, I don't know how easy this is to see, but uh, I, I just wanted to share this because this is in my heart as we were singing and as um, Ozzy was doing devotion. Uh, I, I stumbled upon this verse um, earlier this week, and um, I was kind of caught off guard by one of the words in it um, because it's not something that you normally hear in relation to fearing the Lord or in, in conjunction with fearing the Lord. But um, it's Proverbs 22. It says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. That's, to me, like the, the word humility is what caught me off. So to me, um, we always hear like uh, the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom. You know, it's in Proverbs as well. But, but humility, like what I think of, it, of, of humility is knowing your rightful standing, right? Your, your proper station. Humility is something that, that isn't, uh, I believe, isn't talked about enough. Um, knowing one's proper place and station in life is uh, important because it puts everything else in true perspective. And I think what was, what reminded me of this was just that, uh, oh, I see. Hold on. <laughs> what, uh, what, why I was reminded of this was simply because um, the communion that, that Jesus had with his father, especially in the garden that, that was exemplified, that, that uh, Ozzy talked about, that was humility. We know that, that Christ was in uh, submission in all ways perfectly to, um, to his Father in heaven. And he exemplified what humility is. And I think that, that as we go through our lives, um, it is very, very, very wise coming from the book of wisdom to, to remember your own station, your own place. Um, to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. So I just wanted to start that out. My phone is trying to go to sleep, so I'm curious if uh, this slide is going to stay up if it does that. Okay, so um, contrary to popular belief, I'm not Landon. Uh, it could be many things, but uh, I have often been confused for Landon, so I am not him. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, the glasses, the beard, um, I don't know. It's everything, I guess. Um, but today, um, Lord put in my heart, of course. I really have a problem with this. Sorry. <laughs> this didn't happen last week. The Lord really put on my heart um, uh, to focus on kind of studying one book. And I brought this to our pastoral training team as well and kind of encouraged them to do the same thing. And the book that I always come back to the most is the book of Hebrews because um, it is quite honestly my favorite. Um, but it spoke to me at a, at a time in my life that I uh, needed to hear exactly what it was saying. Um, at one point in my life, I was 
I will say a God seeker and not a Jesus believer. Um, I made a lot of judgment calls on, on who God was because um, I thought I knew better. And I say I thought I knew better because I thought I knew better than what the Bible said about him and, and who he is. And it's, uh, it's a place that I think all of us are at, at a certain point in time that we think we just simply know better than the God of the universe. And I think what I talked about last week of, of how big and how rich and how majestic he is uh, uh, should show us that, that we are very, very small, very small. So one of the things I used to get hung up on was the deity of Christ. And I, I went about trying to um, explain to myself and everybody else why I knew better that Jesus wasn't God and that the Bible didn't really say that he was God. And Jesus never said that he was God and on and on and on. And then um, the Lord humbled me greatly and I realized just, how mighty he was and that everything that he said about himself is absolutely true. So reading the book of Hebrews uh, in my state of humility was very eye-opening because if you don't notice about the book of Hebrews, it's a homily, which means like it is, it is simply a message to believers for encouragement. And when I first read through this after I became a true born-again believer, I realized that the book of Hebrews deals with the entirety of the gospel message in such succinct and precise ways that if you don't read it coming away with the, the, the realization that, that God is who he says he is and that you are really a speck of dust compared to him, you, you are missing everything and you are probably not born again. That's how powerful I think this book is. So, the Lord laid on my heart to go through Hebrews 1. We're not going to do the whole thing. We're going to do four verses. And I think these four verses speak to what I was just saying, that four verses in Hebrews will show you who God is, all of the truth that you ever need to know, especially for salvation, who you are, and just the simple fact that every way that we try to save ourselves and reach salvation or reach heaven or reach even God himself, is it falls flat. It is worth nothing. Nothing. We cannot do anything to reach him, to, to be saved outside of him himself through his son. So, um, about the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of uncertainty about the book of Hebrews. You don't know this already. We don't know who wrote it exactly. Some be believe it's Paul. Some believe it's Barnabas. Some believe it's Apollos. We don't know exactly. We don't know who the audience was, so we don't know where it was written. It was just called Hebrews. Like, the Hebrews were all over the place in the ancient world. So we don't know where it was sent. We don't know if it was sent to a bunch of different places. We don't know. We don't even know when it was written exactly. And we don't even know why it was written. Like, we know what it contains, but we don't know why the author wrote it to send it out to the people he sent it to at the time that he sent it to. We don't know any of that, none of it. But what we do know is that Hebrews is very certain about all the things that I was just talking about, all the truth, what is false, not true, 
who God is, namely the triune God, and that he is supreme over everything. So, I want to begin by reading Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'm going to read out of the uh, English Standard Version for um, all you lesser people there. Just kidding. I'm kidding. All right. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Father, um, your word is perfect, and uh, we just ask that you come and you dwell with us right now as we study it and as we um, meditate on it, Lord. Um, Father, we, my goal is just to show you as, as supreme and as above all, and that um, you are shown that way uh, to each of us who, who profess and confess you and possess you, especially us, but to those who might not know you either, that you would be know, known here in this place and that you would reign here and now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oops. If I pause, it's because my phone's going to sleep. And my wife doesn't want her face shown everywhere. <laughs> okay. We're going to go verse by verse. One, one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is very succinct, pointing simply to the Old Testament. Long ago mean, literally means days of old, like the days that were before us. Um, and this is the, the, you know, the author talking here uh, about the days leading up to the, the, this age that they are currently in. Remember last week when I said about the dispensations and, and uh, uh, being according to something? Like what, what the author is saying here is long ago, meaning in that previous dispensation or in the previous dispensations, plural, they, they, this is how God spoke to these people, our fathers. And when it says that many times, it kind of reiterates this. It literally means in many portions, and in many ways, it says aspects. So many portions, there's, there's portions given out over a period of time. There's aspects, different views of God, different views of his word, of what he's saying from all these different people. And, and he's, he's simply saying God spoke in a bunch of different ways to the people that came before us, and now they're in this book. At, the, at this time, it was the Old Testament scriptures, they're, they're told in here, in here. Well, we ha I think one of the important things to learn or to, to keep in mind about the, the whole dispensations thing is that they were told through men, right? We know that man compiled this, but that 1 Timothy 3.16 says that it was breathed by God, right? It was inspired divinely. 
So to, to put this in perspective, all prophets, all prophecy in the time that we're talking about was partial and incomplete. And it was all pointing to a final prophet who would bring about that completion. So what we read through, from Genesis through Malachi is simply leading up to Jesus, leading up to the Son. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting um, side note here. So you notice in, in the first four verses, it doesn't say the Son by name, right? It just says the Son. In fact, Hebrews doesn't even mention Jesus by name until chapter 2, verse 9. And we have a, a chapter and a half of talking about him and never mentioning him by name. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and rather poetic, too, because we're talking about prophecy here. And the prophecy, never mentioning Jesus by name, right? Like, in, it, we can point to Isaiah where it says Emmanuel, but he was always known as Jesus, right? And Emmanuel really just means God with us, right? So, so that wasn't exactly pointing to what he was going to be called, just what he was, what he was going to be. So all of prophecy in the Old Testament points to one thing, one person, one moment in time. So keep that in mind as we talk about dispensations. What I what I'm reminded of here is um, Second uh, Peter chapter one. Peter writes, "And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed." Now, mind you, this is after Christ, right? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do sorry to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is the thing that we have to remember about prophecy and about all the, the partialness and, and the incompleteness that was leading up to Jesus was that sometimes the Old Testament prophets wrote what they didn't understand. Like, can you imagine being Moses? And, I mean, we know that, that he was in the wilderness with these these forsaken people that, that kept grumbling. And, and do you think Moses understood what he was being told to write down, much less live through? No, he grumbled too at times. Lord, why did you put these people on me? I don't, I don't, I can't, he, can't, he couldn't see in the future. He didn't know what, what the Lord had planned for them. And yet he did, kind of, because he was privy to what the promise was and, and where that promise was leading them. And all the, all the prophets were the same way. They didn't understand at times how the Holy Spirit was carrying them into writing things, into doing things, into going places. Like, remember Jeremiah? He was told to find some underwear and bury them in the mud by the river and then put them on. What? That is insane. Like, if, if a person today did that in, in full view of everybody, we'd be calling the cops. Right? Like, that, that is crazy. And yet, he did it. 
because that's what faith does. God spoke. Not only did he speak here, not only did he speak through the prophets, not only is all prophecy and, and all scripture God breathed, which kind of invokes the idea of, of speaking, but as a reminder, Genesis 1.1 starts out with, in the beginning, God. And how did he bring about creation? His word, speaking. There's a connection here between speaking and word. And, and what I, we'll get, we'll get into this in the next little part here, but what I think about in God's word is how often in God's word it relates to him as the word. And so there's this kind of vague assimilation, a connection of things and, and him um, talking about the word. How else would God choose to convey the truth? <laughs> Sometimes, Bruce. I, I, he used a two-by-four in my life, right? And yeah, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. But, but even in that, the Holy Spirit knocking you over the head with a club, he points us to his word, what he says, because what he says holds value. What he says holds power. And we read that in a, in, in a little bit in, in uh, uh, verse 3. Uh, by the power of, or by the word of his power. So we see that connection there. There is value in what he says, so much so that he brought the entirety of creation into being through just speaking, right? So what I, how I want to wrap up this little section, this verse here, is simply to say that this is the antithesis or this is the opposite of what the world calls philosophy. So here's the first point in the whole thing, that what man conjures up that is, is the closest to being the true word of God is philosophy. So if we think of the great philosophers like Buddha and Lao Tzu and Confucius and Socrates and Aristotle, the, all of those things could be summed up as being pretty wise, right? Like even as Christians, like we could look through um, all their writings and, and what, what they taught, and we could find little kernels of truth and be like, oh man, yeah, that's true. That, that relates to what I read in Proverbs or, or, or what Paul wrote too, right? We can look through all those things, but that is literally the best that the world has to offer when, when it's talking about what truth is and what God's word is, right? Because we know that God is truth. So, and this is, this is one thing that I used to get caught up on because another, another thing that, that we see here in philosophies and what we often mistake is, is intelligence, right? Sometimes we think that our own knowing, our own wisdom, we call it wisdom. God, God would just call it uh, maybe understanding or knowledge, as the Proverbs says. We... We get caught up on this thinking that we know better than what God's word says or what he's trying to show us in our lives, and it's simply not true. So the thing that I want to keep in mind here 
is that a kernel of truth in what somebody says is nothing compared to incarnate wisdom. And that was Jesus. So, Jesus over wisdom. I'm sorry. Jesus over philosophy. Jesus over knowledge. Jesus over intelligence. Um, Edward Fudge said this, and I think it's really apt uh, for this point. He said, unless the stories of non-Jewish prophets intersect the salvation story that is Scripture's theme, the Old Testament is silent concerning their existence. Think about that. All the people that were non-Jewish, that lived all over the world at the time that the Old Testament was being written and the prophecy was being handed down to individual men and women, if, they, if what they said and what they taught didn't somehow weave its way through the salvation story that God was working in the world, this is the dispensation, the scriptures don't mention it one bit. Not at all. And I think that's important to keep in mind because there's a lot of times when we see those kernels of truth in something and we want to, our flesh wants to take it and say, you know what? There's a little bit of truth in, in what that, that other religion teaches, what the Buddhists believe, what, what the, the uh, uh, Greek philosophers said. And, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going I'm to try to find these things and, and relate them back to Scripture. And now, now I'm going to merge these two things together, and that gets really, really dangerous because what you're doing is you're taking something that has a kernel of truth and you're trying to force it into what God has incarnated in true, pure wisdom in his Son. And that's, that's if we remember, that's what Israel did in the temple by taking other gods, other images, and putting them in next to the Ark of the Covenant, putting them next to uh, God himself. And God called that idolatry. Let's move on. Verse 2. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So now the author is adjusting the perspective here. First, we were talking about the days that were already were in the past and how God spoke through certain people in certain ways at certain times and how he was constructing this story, this plot, all leading up to this one point. And now he's addressing these last days, which, which in my opinion is the current dispensation, the one marked by grace in the church through Jesus Christ. And he's saying he's spoken it by his son, not by any other man, not by some far-off man in some other land, not by, as, as uh, the Mormons believe, Joseph Smith, who lived 200 years ago. Not, no, it ended with Jesus. His son, his own son, was the last prophet, true prophet. We can have prophecy, right? Paul talks about the, the, the prophets uh, uh, in the church, but what he's 
saying is that those prophets are, are conjuring the same ideas, the same spirit that led all the way up to Jesus. And if we have God's spirit in us, we would be talking about the same exact things that Jesus taught and did and said. But Jesus completed all of it. Getting back to the word, it says, through whom? Now, I know in the KJV it says, uh, by whom? Um, I'm going to jump a, a little bit ahead here. But by whom? Uh, the KJV says he also created the world. Uh, there's some, I've learned that there's some varying thought about through and by. And to most of us, maybe it doesn't really amount to much. We, we kind of get what God is saying here. But there seems to be like a hang-up on those two little words that, that I guess sometimes are interchangeable and sometimes are not, like through and by. Like a book is by somebody, but a book isn't through somebody. There's where that comparison kind of breaks down a little bit. We don't see the difference between these two words. The time that the KJV was written, and the reason that it says by is, is uh, kind of dated for that time. And I think uh, uh, if you get into the, the Greek of this, it really does mean through. So this can create some confusion because if we say by, it was cre- uh, by whom also he created the world, it would kind of point to Jesus being the creator. And that's not biblical. The Father was the creator, right? We know that to be true. So through whom speaks to other scripture, and I think this is the importance of of saying this. This would be like um, uh, me saying, I I built this piece of furniture uh, by using X, Y, and Z tools, right? Did the tools make the furniture? Not really, but it was how I created it. They were agents of mine that I employed to create that piece. And I think that's really what, what the KJV means by that, is that it was, it was a, an agent used by the Father, the Creator, to bring up forth creation. And I think what points to this is simply John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, which I don't have up here, but I'll, I'll just read, uh, actually 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So one of the first studies, word studies that I did in the Bible was on this word, word, which is the Greek word logos. So this is where we get uh, our word logic from. Um, It can also be translated into uh, like blueprint or design, something along those lines. So you get that concept that, that it's not, it's not um, uh, the person saying it, it is the actual saying itself. And so now we get this idea, this concept that, that what God the Father was speaking was actually the love that he has for his son. And Jesus was maybe quite literally, uh, if you take this passage, the blueprint, the design, the concept for the entirety of creation. And when we look back at the garden and we see the perfection that was, and God said repeatedly, it is good, it is good, it is good, it was because of his son 
that he was was with in communion. We I, I loved what Ozzy said and, and the fact that you brought up uh, John 17. We see the communion that the Father and the Son had in that moment in the garden. But that same communion is eternal. And it was at the, the birth of creation, and it's right now here, and it will be a thousand, thousand years in the future, that same communion. So when it says that through whom also he created the world, I, I think that the communion is a large aspect of that, but also right before that it says appointed the heir of all things. So he is dealing with the entirety of history, the entirety of creation. And, and, and to add on to this, the last word here, the world. Now, we think of the world, and it's, it's as if uh, it's earth, right? The whole world, right? We, we talk about that like world news, right? It deals with news all over our planet. But that's not what the Greek actually is. It, it, this word here is ion, which is where we get our word for eon, or epoch, or era, it was a time. It, it, was, it was a, just like in, in verse 1, that dispensation in many ways and in many places, this is how it was. So even in this, we're talking about this, this little tiny fragment of, of God's eternality. Remember last week I talked about how big God was, and it was like, how could you describe the ocean and the volume of the ocean in, in terms that somebody would actually understand. Like, we can talk about it in gallons. Like, everybody knows what a gallon of milk looks like. But do you know what 100 billion trillion gallons of milk look like? I don't. <laughs> you could say the ocean. <laughs> but then you're, like, defining the word with the word. And that's not, that's not what we do. That's not even logical. So like that little tiny fragment that we know as creation from the beginning of time to the end of time is this one little tiny speck and God is larger, infinitely larger than that. And that one little speck is just like a speck of dust on his shirt and that's us, all of us forever and ever. That's just us. So to put this in a little bit more perspective, these last days he spoke through that son that came into the creation, which he also used his son to create, the blueprint, the design to create. He sent his son into that creation and appointed him heir of all of it. Right? Following? Cool. What this points to is God's eternality, having no beginning. It points to Jesus' begottenness. He is not created. And it points to the coming end. So, again in Second Peter, um, I have uh, 10 through 13 here. I'm actually going to start at 8 because, like, why not? Um, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'm reminded of this because it speaks to how finite we are. Remember when I started here, I was talking about humility if this isn't a humbling passage, like, uh, I mean, we can just turn the page and, and read over here, and we're not going to read all through this because it's really just supporting evidence of, of why the author wrote these first four verses. But, but he quotes uh, Psalm 102 later in, in uh, uh, verses 10 and 11. He says, You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Praise God for that. Because if I were in charge, (laughs) I wouldn't know the first thing to do. I wouldn't know the first thing to do. Because my puny little mind can't comprehend even how big God is. So how would I even put myself in his shoes to do all that he does and to know when the appropriate time is when when the fullness of the gentiles come in and and jesus comes back i, I wouldn't know what to do i would have called it already and i think most of us would have all right what the uh another another thing that that this relates to and i this is another reason why i love hebrews because there are so many lines of thinking that get brought back up later in 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 um, chapters further along, and we all know Hebrews eleven one, and I think one through three kind of sums all this up. and And I I like to point this out in relation to verse two because that same word for world there is again used in uh, in uh, verse three for universe, which is kind of crazy to think about that. So I just want to read that too. It says, Now faith is the, ins- the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This too talks about his eternality. And it talks about about the begottenness of Jesus and the role that he played in creation, but also in our salvation. I'll leave it at that. The next thing that, that uh, the way of the world that I like to point out here is what I'll call materialism. And, and verse 2 addresses this very, very succinctly. So, As you can imagine, the, talking about creation and how finite it is compared to God and what is going to happen to it in, in the, these last days, 
materialism is nothing. It's nothing. It's all going to burn. All of it. Peter just told us that. So what I would refer to as scientism, that is like putting your faith in all the observable things in in this world and doing all your detailed analysis and research and then coming up with with a a theory and then trying to prove that and making it law, it doesn't matter. That's going to burn. We just saw that in uh, Hebrews 11, which is still up on the screen, by the way, that... That stuff is what we can see, right? Even science, by definition, is only what is observable. We take observable things and we, we analyze them to arrive at, at theories and then laws on top of that. But that is only what is seen and what is measurable. What can't be measured is God. We already saw how big he is. Who can measure that? Who can measure it? That's the unseen in, in, in the reality of this world is that all of those things that we cannot measure is really what the substance of life is. It's not what we can touch, not what we wear. So sciencism is proved false. Atheism, it says that God doesn't exist. That, that he wasn't ever, so he could never be, and he never is. The Bible obviously thinks otherwise, <laughs> to put it lightly. Hedonism. It's just whatever you want. Just live for pleasure, right? But guess what? You're going to die. And we know what the Bible says. You will die and meet God. What are you going to say to him after living your life for pure pleasure? Oh, sorry, man. I was just living it up. It's also against meism. It's all about me. I understand what you want, but I'm going to do what I want because I think it's right. And from that point, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to philosophies and, and intellectualism and all of that. Third verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This one... If what God was back then and what God will be in the future, and that's eternity, and, and the, his son, who he, he uses an agent in creation through their communion together, was not enough, he simply says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. We're talking about the son here. Remember, we haven't mentioned Jesus yet in scripture, uh, this part of scripture. But we're saying that the Son is the radiance of God the Father. Sorry. This word radiance is apogasma, and it, it kind of means reflection, but I think more succinctly, it means like a light flashing forth. So like you think like you're in the woods in the middle of the night and you know how dark it can get, especially if you're up north or something and it's just like pitch black and then all of a sudden this flashlight turns on. That's Jesus. Two other words that, that are associated with this, radiation and gleam. So like there's this glow. And what I think of when I think of all these terms put together is... Um, I'm not a morning person, really. 
But on the rare occasion that I do get up in the morning and you actually see the sunrise and you know how like the light gets really light, right? Or the sky, the sky gets really light. Like you, you know, dawn is imminent, but it's not there because the sun's not up over the horizon yet. And then as you're like thinking about it and it catches you off guard almost, and it's like, there's a sun. That's Jesus. That right there, that little gleam, that radiation that comes up over the horizon, that's Jesus. And that's what Hebrews says he's like, the radiance of the glory of God. You know it's there. You know God is there all the time, all the time. We can think about this. We can, we can tell ourselves over and over and over again, no, God is always present. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. And we don't, I, I know this is true in my life so many times, we don't fully understand that until we see who Christ is. And that gleam hits us, and we're like, oh, that's right. And it actually sinks into our hearts, and we know. It also says he's the exact imprint. Think about what that means, the exact imprint. Like imprint gives me the, the idea of like a printing press, you know, like, like it's being printed onto something. Coming from somewhere else, putting onto something else. And the word imprint is the Greek word character, which Guess what? That's where we get our word character. <laughs> um, but quite literally, it is like a die. Like, like if anybody has any machining background and, and the sharp tools that, that are used to, to cut out other really hard metals, that is a die. And so we have this raw, hard metal. Maybe it's steel. Who knows? And, it's, and there's this die that's really sharp and even harder than that metal because you can't cut something with something else unless that something else is harder than the first thing, right? So, so it's really hard and it's cutting, engraving, carving away. So we think about that and, and, and what this actually means, the exact imprint of his, God the Father's nature. So what it's saying is that everything that God the Father is, all of his attributes, all of his promises, all of his, his yeses and amens were found, carved, into the character, the nature of Jesus. What I, what I come back to are the people that say that somehow, they arrive at this, somehow the God of the Old Testament, oh man, he was really angry all the time. And he did all the you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Achan and you know all these like kind of bad people and he like just retribution all the time. I don't really like that God. But Jesus, I like Jesus a lot because he hung out with people that were like me and and he he made me feel like all warm and gooey inside and that I like Jesus a lot. Guess what? The God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are one and the same. There is no difference. And I think any any Christian who has read their Bible enough will learn, will know that there are a ton of examples in the Old Testament of God pouring out his love and mercy and loving kindness on those people. Remember what Peter said that we just read, God is not slack like we think he is. He is patient. 
He he waited for 40 years of the, with those people in the desert. I would have been like, peace out. <laughs> I'm like, the first night, I'm like, um, am I really doing this? Because I'll go back to the sheep. I'll just take care of the sheep, man. <laughs> Send them back to Egypt. I'll do my thing. That would have been what I would have done. Jesus and the Father share an intimate nature with one another. Again, speaking to the communion that they have. The last thing here. Is it the last thing? No, it's not the last thing. Sorry. Um, that word upholds. I love this word because it points to another, um, another book that I love is Colossians. Because Colossians is about sanctification. If you don't know this, because it shows who God is and it shows who we are. And then it says, you're on a pathway to become more and more like him. Colossians 1, 15. This relates to uh, our passage in John earlier too. It says, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So remember, he was appointed as heir. Here's more proof. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent is exactly what we're talking about in Hebrews right here. Preeminent. Did you catch the, the opening thing with the mountains and the sunshine? It was really cool. The words in front of it was more important, though. Supremacy of the sun. Supreme. Over everything. Preeminent. First. Before everything, he's first. He's more important. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's the nature again. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ holds all things together. Like, if you think of the smallest thing, like we, we, last week we talked about how big things were. But this week, let's talk about a little bit how small things are. If we go down to our, the molecules in our body, the cells and, and the molecules that make up our body. And then we go even further down to atoms. Like you, Science has shown us that we can only get so small before things like just stop um, like actually existing. So we know that there's a limit of like physical matter in some capacity. Jesus is like that glue that holds all this stuff together. Like if I took... Um, if, if, if water is made up of, of hydrogen and oxygen, right? Like we learned that in, I don't know what grade, <laughs> sixth grade, I don't know. When did you learn that, Lexi? When did you learn that, Caden? Okay, apparently not in high school or middle school. Um, but at some point in our lives, we learned that it's hydrogen and oxygen, right? But if we take hydrogen molecules and oxygen molecules in the proper proportions, we put them together, we don't get water, like if we take all of the nutrients and all the cells that make up an apple and we take all of them in proportion to one another and we put them together in a pot, we don't get an apple. Do you know why? Because God is supreme. He created it that way. He hasn't even given us the ability to, to put all those things together and synergize this thing that he has created into being. 
he, we can't do that. And I think what that, what is kind of like a caricature of, of sorts, but what, what it, what it proves to me is that Christ is holding these things together. He is what makes up creation. And if, if he was the, the, the blueprint, the, the logos that, that creation came into being through, wouldn't it be logical that he's also what holds things together? And then at that point, if he says so, you could just fall apart. All of your little molecules could just fall apart. And you're nothing. Think about that. So, so if you want to get all existential... <laughs> There's something for you. And yet it shows his grace. He could at any point, just like during the flood, he could say, you know what? Maybe it wasn't such a good idea that I created all these people. Like they're, they're like evil, evil all the time. Everything they do, everything they think, their hearts are evil all the time. I want to destroy them. But he saw Noah and his family. And he said, that's a righteous man. He did it again with Abraham. And, and Lot, and he shows us grace constantly to just, even just to keep us in existence. Because at any moment, he could say, I'm done holding you together. But that's not what he does. The last part here is, is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What I think of here is when he was on the cross and he said, it is finished. It's done. What needed to be done, I've done. We know that that's not the end of that story because three days later he rose from the grave and then several more after that, he ascended to heaven where we know now that he's sitting next to his father in heaven. So again, we have this communal aspect of the father and the son but on top of that he's king over everything and he's on the throne right now like if the king like our president doesn't do this and i don't know if our president ever did this but at one time the leaders of nations would actually like ride out the battle and that's a crazy concept because i think in our society we're like man if the president (laughs) rode out the battle he'd probably get killed And that's probably true. And sometimes the kings did get killed. But when the king was at home, and he's in his castle, in the throne room, sitting on the throne, that meant that there was some peace there because he wasn't riding out the battle. And I think that there's some kind of finality in this because we know that that he defeated sin and death, right? He came up out of Hades with two keys in his hands, and he said, you're done, The battle's been won already. He's sitting down on his throne because there's some peace here. And we read some uh, uh, later in in this chapter that that all all this stuff is like a footstool to him. So like I just imagine Jesus there on his throne, like with his feet up, because that's what he did. So we talked last week about the riches that we have in him. What about the victory? What what about what about the defeat of our our chief enemies in, in this world, which are sin and death? What this points to and how the world tries to to do all of that that we just talked about is what we call heresy, deviating from the actual truth and trying to come up with our own version of it. Um, uh, 
Ozzy mentioned uh, gnosis, uh, the word, the Greek word. Gnosticism, which is derived from that word, what was was a heresy early in the church, saying that that wisdom or or knowledge really was was the pathway to God. That you could know enough in order to attain your own salvation. Ain't true. Adoptionism, which means that Jesus wasn't created, he was just adopted as God's son. Yeah, that was a real belief at one time. But you know what? It's still prevalent now because we got a whole bunch of people that in this world that don't, I mean, I, I guess I kind of was one of them, that I didn't believe that, that Jesus could have been God. Still alive now. Arianism, not, not like, oh, sorry guys, I'm not paying attention. Arianism, which, which is not like the Nazi thing, it's uh, uh, a, a third century heresy that basically said that Jesus was a created entity and was not divine, was just purely human, and God worked through that. By the way, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. What I'm getting at here is that the heresies from 2,000 years ago we see cropping up today. If you if you hear of, of a, a of a cult or you hear of some new new strain of, of what they're passing off as Christianity, chances are it's already been done. Those thoughts, those philosophies, those ideas were already thought of two thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, and and somebody created a, a, a group around that belief, and that pertains to Jehovah's Witnesses today. Let's move on. Last part. Verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I love the word name because um, you know that God has uh, a soft spot in his heart for names. Like recall so many times in the, the Old Testament where he changed somebody's name, where he said, you're going to go by this name now. He did that for a purpose. There were people that he wanted to work through in certain ways, and he wanted to, to rename them something that would embody that. Right? Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, and so on. This be, the name aspect speaks to the essence of who the son is, and that essence relates back to the nature that they share in common. And it also relates to a rank and a position this, this is a name that he inherited from his father, just like all the inheritance of, was appointed to Jesus to be king of. He, he, was, he was also inheriting this excellent name, excellent, which is Greek for literally so much better. That's literally what the Greek means. So much better was this name than, than, than any other name, even the names of the angels. What this points to, again, is that because Jesus was begotten, not created, his nature is intrinsically, that means naturally, different from the nature of angels. We have these, this idea of angels being something greater than us, right? And in some ways they are because, like, throughout the Bible, uh, we see a lot of people getting pretty freaked out when they see one, and they fall flat on their face as if they're going to worship it. And they're like, hey, no, no, don't worship that because I am a servant just like you, right? 
the angels have said that. And that's what points to, to what the, the angels actually were. They were messengers. They were servants. They were soldiers of heaven. We see that all throughout Scripture. And I think that what this reminds me of is Romans 1. <laughs> this gets to our last, our last confusion here in, in the world. Romans 1, uh, verses 21 through 25 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It also makes me think of just a little later in the chapter. In verse 14, it says, Are they, not speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Think about what that's saying. If we take all of the ways the angels are serving and ministering to us, even down to, to the waves and wind, even down to, to the, the sun, even down to the earth's path around it, we see the images, glimpses, very small throughout Scripture of the angels being intimately involved in, in creation, stewarding it in a way that, that ministers to us. And, and we see here in, in, in Hebrews that they are to be ministering spirits to us to serve us for our sakes because we're the ones that are supposed to inherit salvation. A perversion of this is what we call paganism. Paganism is the worship of the created world. And that's what Romans 1 is talking about, and I believe that that is kind of hinting uh, Hebrews 1.14 here, that, that these created beings, which are created just like us, are really not that different from us, even though we see them in, in a, a, an elevated stature. Christ is over all of them. And to, to elevate uh, a, another created being, um, I, I think of, of Greek mythology, Roman mythology too, where, where they're worshiping the sun as, as Apollo, or they're worshiping the sea as, as Poseidon or Neptune or, or, or whoever. What are they worshiping? They, they, they've exchanged the truth for a lie, the Bible says. But these things are, are prevalent in our own culture. Now, we have a rise of New Ageism. We have a rise of, of Wiccan. Like, I know Landon has, has mentioned this point. Some of the county jails, I think Oshka, um, Winnebago County had a, a chaplain that was a Wiccan. A chaplain in the jail was a Wiccan. And... and these things are pervasive. I, I, I've met several people in my life who, who were professing Wiccans. And, and what they believe is simply nature is to be worshipped. There, there is to be a, a, a reverence, uh, beyond a reverence for, for the created beings. The mytho mythologies of Romanism, uh, Roman uh, mythology and, and Greek mythology uh, all pointed to that too. They were just different versions of this. The... 
the thing, one of the things that I've had a lot of experience with, but, but, um, in my own life, but, um, is prevalent today is Mormonism. Mormonism believes that Jesus was created, that he was, he was a, a brother to Satan, an angelic being, a spirit brother. They are trading a truth for a lie. If you, if you know any Mormons, I lived in Utah for, for three and a half years, around Mormons all the time, and interacting with them, talking about, about these types of things. It's sad what they believe. If you know Mormons, there, there are Mormons everywhere. If you know Mormons, talk, talk to them. Tell them truth. Love them. Love them well. Because they, they, they are very, very misled to who Jesus is. The overarching theme here is obviously the supremacy of the Son. Not only was he the, the agent through which creation was, but he is in communion with God the Father now. Not only did he come to purify us of our own sins because we couldn't do it ourselves, all these things that I, that I brought up uh, as, as us reaching for him, they don't get us to him. Jesus was it. And Jesus is on the throne right now, waiting to get off to come back and bring us with him. The reason I love Hebrews is, especially these first four verses, is it speaks to, to the overarching theme of salvation, but more pointedly, the gospel message that is Jesus Christ. And he didn't even mention Jesus by name. No need to at this point. Because what he is, what he's done, everything that he's already accomplished, everything that is to come, it's all within his hands. All of it. He's done everything. The one who, who was the agent of creation, who, who uh, uh, holds everything together, would, not, would it not also be logical for him needing to be the one that saves us all too? He is all in all. And I think keeping him in, in that elevated status is, is the most important thing. I'm out of words, guys. I'm going to pray. Lord, we want to um, recognize you for who you are. We want to think of ourselves as low creatures, um, undeserving of, of your love and your grace and your mercy. Um, and when we do that, we, we put you properly on the throne in our lives and pointing to uh, the simple fact that you are supreme, that you are sovereign over all. Um, Lord, because of you uh, being eternal, having no beginning, having no end, Lord, we, we just want a, a proper understanding perspective of who we are inside of all of that, Lord. Father, help us to glorify you in that, just like that, that first gleam of the sun coming up over the horizon, reminding us of your love for us, of when you sent your son to die. Lord, help us to keep that close to our hearts. Um, for those who, who may not yet believe here, I just pray that, that these, these words could be 
um, a penetration of their hearts and that they could see you in your right standing and know that you are infinitely bigger than they and that they would come to a, a point of humility and, and a surrender to give you control to put it all in your hands. And we pray for Pastor Landon and ask that you continue showing him uh, your richness, the fullness of it, um, your glory and your strength, Lord, in very difficult times and just be um, a blessing to them. Let your word just go forth in their lives um, at the Churchill home and, and just, uh, just give them each um, a renewed vigor for this life um, to persevere through hard things and to know that you are with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.